So I set out to write this book uh, with two opening premises, really. Uh, one was, what do we do about this harrowing gap between what the science says we have to do and what our politics seems prepared to entertain? And secondly, uh, my opening premise really was that everything we've been doing for the last 30 years isn't working. Um, Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. In this episode, I'll be talking to climate activist and academic Seth Klein about his new book, A Good War, Mobilizing Canada for the Climate Emergency, published by ECW Press and available at independent booksellers across Canada or online from sethkline.ca, that's S-E-T-H, K-L-E-I-N dot C-A in print, ebook, or audio formats. So welcome to Energy Talk, Seth. Nice to be with you, Marcus. Now, this is going to be a very interesting episode because you wrote a book. Uh, I agree with a lot more of it than I thought I was going to. We'll get into that in a minute. Uh, but I don't agree with all of it. And I, and I think I, take, I disagree with your basic thesis. So we're going to have a little bit of an argument, but respectful and friendly. You know, mm -hmm. which is sounds the good. The way it should be, right? Right. Uh, so let's start uh, with giving you a two or three minutes, uh, just to you know, give us an outline of uh, the book and your argument. Sure. So I'll just take it from there, I guess. Uh, well, so I set out to write this book uh, with two opening premises, really. Uh, one was, what do we do about this harrowing gap? between what the science says we have to do and what our politics seems prepared to entertain. And secondly, uh, my opening premise really was that everything we've been doing for the last 30 years isn't working. Um, I know your listenership is all over the world, but this is a very Canadian book. And, and I opened by looking at Canada's greenhouse gas emissions for the last 20 years and what you basically see is a flat line. We have uh, managed to flatline our emissions. They're not growing, that's the good news, but neither are they uh, in decline. So where it matters most, uh, what we've been trying to date um, is not uh, protecting our children from a horrific future. Um, I was always going to have a chapter on, the, on, on lessons from the Second World War. In the original outline, it was just going to be one chapter because I had long been intrigued by the example of World War II as this, this experience we had of rapid economic uh, transformation, because so often we have in our head, you know, can we really do this in time? And I think the answer is, yeah, we can, because we have twice. Once to ramp up military produ production, another time to reconvert to peacetime. But the more I delved into that work, the more I started to see more and more parallels, and not just economic, but political, and around how's public opinion marshaled, and and uh, what did we do for returning soldiers as a model for just transition for energy uh, workers? Um, how did we marshal, uh, rather navigate confederation? And I ultimately decided to structure the whole book around lessons from the Second World War as this reminder uh, that we've done this before. We have, we have mobilized in the face of an existential threat and, and, and undertaken a, a massive transformation. And so hence the title, A Good War, mobilizing Canada for the climate emergency. Well, I want to say to listeners that having read the book, it's very readable. Um, uh, when academics write popular uh, audiences, that's not all. Of the, in fact, it's probably not often the case. But this is a good read. And so kudos to you. I'm glad you think so. I most certainly do. And I wouldn't say it if I didn't, uh, if I didn't mean it, as listeners know. Um, and 
I want to say that even though this book is very specifically Canadian, I think that the issues it grapples with are universal or they're, you know, very general. Uh, you apply to, if not all uh, countries, most of them. And uh, the solutions that you propose also could be applied to other countries that are grappling with climate policy and how to get their, their emissions down in a timely fashion uh, as per the Paris Agreement. Yeah, so I think so too. I think that's a that's a good point that you know even that uh, listeners outside of Canada shouldn't just think of this as a local thing. It's not a, just a Canadian thing. It's just a, a Canadian example of bigger trends and bigger issues. So here's though where we differ, and and I should start by saying that you did not write the book that I was expecting when I first picked it up. <laughs> and what was what was different is that you, you know, the number of chapters you're leading up to this, you know, grand chapter where you lay out what uh, can, the Canadian government of, of William Lyon Mackenzie King, Canada's longest serving prime minister, and how he, he, you know, basically his government transformed the economy from 1939 to 1945 to, to meet all of, you know, to produce uh, tanks and ships and all of the material and ammunitions. I mean, Canada was a major supplier to the uh, the Allied war effort. Absolutely. Probably not appreciated outside of Canada. Absolutely. And from a base of almost nothing. From a base of almost nothing. And there was one individual who stood at the center of that, that many Canadians will recognize the name, and that's C.D. Howe, mm -hmm. who was, the, I forget his title exactly, but Minister of Everything, I think, pretty much yeah. covered it. Formerly, it was the Minister of Munitions and Supply. Right. And so you explain in the book how C.D. Howe basically ran the economy like a one-man show. He had a, a big team of dollar-a-year men from uh, the corporate world, or in some, in some cases from the academic world. And, and there was this, uh, it was an amazingly well-oiled machine and very successful, which is why you think it, it's a model. But then you did something very curious uh, in the chapter right after, where you said, I'm, I'm writing about this argument or this historical event, not to suggest we should do exactly the same thing this time around, but to explode current, and I think that's the word you used was explode, current thinking about our limitations. That we can in fact, we can again in fact marshal our resources to do something, to meet an emergency, uh, whether we act like this or we act in a different fashion, but nevertheless we can mobilize at that level and and do great things uh, in a short period of time when we need to. And there are lessons to be learned from Have I, you know, is that a fair characterization? Well, mostly. Um, I mean, I actually think we should do a bunch of the things that C.D. Howe uh, did, but not, you know, it's not a perfect template. Obviously, we need to modernize it. But my, my contention is, when I say, as I did off the top, that all we have managed to do is flatline our emissions. And I ask myself, like, why is that? And my answer is that because so much of how we have approached climate to date is through the prism of, and constraints, really, the straitjacket of neoliberal thinking. We, we make everything voluntary. We incentivize change. We rebate it. We send price signals. We incentivize. Um, but what we decidedly don't do is require. Um, and uh, what, what I marvel at when I look at that World War II history, and in particular, 
C.D. Howe was his flexibility. Like this guy was no lefty, right? This guy was firmly on the right wing of the liberal cabinet. He came from the private sector. He'd made a lot of money uh, building all the grain elevators of the 1920s that dotted our country. Um, uh, but he was seized with the task. And so um, anytime the, the market and the private sector couldn't quickly do what needed doing, he created another crown corporation uh, to try to get the job done. So my, my point is when I, when I wonder like, why aren't we spending what we need to spend to tackle this climate crisis? Why aren't we using the regulatory power of the state to drive change? Why aren't we creating new crown corporations to get the job done? It's because our politicians across the political spectrum, incidentally, from, from conservative to new Democrat, are still trapped in this neoliberal thinking that considers all of those things off limits. And, and C.D. Howe, to his credit, wasn't constrained that way in the face of an emergency. Let me now give you my counter argument. Sure. And I want to preface it by saying uh, to the listeners that Seth and I agree on the climate science. Uh, we agree on the urgency of reducing emissions. So on the fundamentals of this argument, we do agree. We're not, the, the only thing on what we will disagree is how to get there in a timely mm -hmm. fashion. And so I'm going to go it's a back. a fair disagreement. Absolutely. So I'm going to, as I often do when we talk about energy technology, which I do often on this podcast and in my interviews, but I go back to the thesis I wrote in the mid-1980s about the uh, transition from horse-drawn technology to power farming uh, in Saskatchewan from 1900 to 1930, because it nicely illustrates an energy transition. It, it nicely, uh, the energy transition, this one and others have been driven by, often by technologies, and they follow the S-curve, and they generally last 50-ish years, as Vaclav Schmiel is fond of reminding us. And so let me describe what happened uh, in the mechanization of farming on the Canadian prairies. So in the late 19th century, we have the emergence of the steam tractor, you know, great big steam engine basically on wheels that wasn't, was very expensive and not very practical and on the prairies basically used for breaking new land, you know, where the, you know, lots of roots and trees and it was difficult. Then it was, it was uh, adapted to what they call threshing machines, which is basically, uh, you know, like a, 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 an old combine, and it would be attached by a, a pulley and a, a belt. And then in the, uh, before the Great War, so since 1910-ish, you have the introduction of great big gasoline, so internal combustion engine tractors, and these were about the same size as the steam tractors, and they could do more, but they still were, you know, they required big farms, big corporate farms. They weren't very good for the quarter section farmer that was common at the time. And then after the Great War, 1918, 1919, you have the introduction of the Fordson. And basically Henry Ford took all of the, his, the technology and his uh, ideas of assembly line manufacture of automobiles and he applied them to tractors. And they were cheap and they did the job for these quarter section farmers. And then in the mid twenties, you have the introduction of what's called the combine, which we see hundred years later is still used there. You know, they cost $300,000 and they're uh, vastly bigger, but 
essentially the same thing, right? You, uh, you take, separate the wheat from the chaff and collect it so that you can send it off to market. And then that the 20s was the disruptive decade in that industry and that technology. That was the decade in which from 1920 to 1930, there was a substantive difference in the technology that was used, the way farms were organized, and all of the trends accelerated. So if you look at it from a technology adoption point of view, the, the technology spent the first 20-ish years going from the beginning of the S-curve, hitting up to the inflection point, and then in the 20s, it hit the inflection point and went zooming up the, the curve, uh, and then spent the 30s, well, you know, there was a depression, so that there was necessarily a bit of a uh, lag. So but let, let, so let me finish, Seth. So, but then in the 30s and 40s, now by the end of the 40s, you could not find a horse in a field in Saskatchewan, Alberta, or Manitoba. And I'm sure the same was true in the Dakotas and Wyoming and other places where they, where they grew wheat. And what we're seeing today is that exact same process at play. The clean energy technologies, and you can think of wind and, and solar and lithium ion batteries and electric cars, really got their, their roots go back to the 1990s, to the late 20th century. And they have spent the last 20-ish years improving, falling in cost, climbing up that S-curve. And now here we are, uh, literally 100 years later, that new set of technologies is ready to hit the inflection point. Wind and solar are already cheaper than any other form of electricity. Lithium ion batteries are falling off a cliff. Electric vehicles are gonna be price parity. Stick oh, so I take your thesis, I get it. I, you're yeah. saying that we, that left to its own devices, these technological innovations hit a certain tipping point and then they don't really need state intervention. They're just gonna take off. Um, and, and that that was the, that uh, historic example out of agriculture. There is an interesting irony in your example, by the way, which is those same technologies, this would be a subject for another show, of course, uh, destroyed the soil and, and undermined the capacity of the soil to st store carbon in agriculture. But, but uh, unintended consequences. Unintended consequences. Oh. But look, you and I can agree, there are many historical examples uh, that one can draw on, on how change happens and at different rates. And in some ways, I hope you're right in this case. And uh, it really comes down to a question of do we have time? Because my contention in the book is that we have run out the clock with so many distracting debates about incremental changes. And now the IPCC has given us this very short window. And maybe you're right that we're right on the cusp and now the change is going to become exponential. But maybe you're wrong. And in the end, I'm actually not prepared to roll the dice on the future of all of our children, that that change left to its own devices uh, will occur. Let me give you a counter-historic example based on the analogy I'm using in the book. In the Second World War, Pearl Harbor happened in December of 1941. In February of 1942, two months later, the last civilian automobile rolled off the assembly line in Detroit. Did that happen because the automakers appreciated the moment, the historic moment we found ourselves and did all that? No, they were ordered uh, to change their production lines. They continued to serve an important role, 
I think the private sector then, just as now, has an important role to play. But in an emergency, this is the point I am making in the book, in an emergency when you are at the 11th hour and time is short, you don't leave the allocation of scarce resources to the market. You have to drive change. And there are other examples of where we use the regulatory power of the state to drive changes, right? You and I are both, you know, we're similar age, I think, judging from our beards. And uh, so we can remember when, when seatbelt laws were made mandatory. We can remember when smoking was banned from restaurants and bars and the industry said it was gonna be the end of them or, or, and, and these were terrible infringements on our civil liberties. It took, it took enough pressure for governments to require the change and then they just become the new normal in a remarkable period of, short period of time. It's the interplay between the market and the, and the state. Um, but what I appreciate in my study of the Second World War is that while there was an important role for the private sector to play, the truly amazing thing of those, about those business leaders at the time is that they understood that in the face of an emergency, it actually had to be state-led. And, and they actually, uh, they recognized it, they appreciated it, they went along with it, and in fact, they helped to lead it and lent their business talents to it. I'm going to give you an example drawn from our home province. Seth and I both live in, in British Columbia. And the, one of the points that you make in your book is that electrification needs to happen yesterday. Right. So we're agreed on that. And as it happens, I have done a great deal of reporting and uh, research on electrification and electrical markets and power generation over the last six months, including BC. So let's talk about British Columbia, because it is a crown corporation, the very thing that you're talking about. And you have written in other, uh, in other areas or other fora uh, about BC Hydro and saying that it is the preferred method. This is how we're gonna electrify. And I would argue, sir, that in fact, BC Hydro and the, BC, and the NDP government in, will screw it up. And they will actually, the unintended consequence of sticking to crown corporations in this instance will in fact lead to the opposite result that you were looking for. And I'll tell you why. The electrification studies in BC suggest that by 2050, at least two times more power will be required than is currently used. And that's about 55,000 gigawatt hours a year. That's, uh, and most of the uh, power in BC right now is produced by hydro dams. And that's kind of BC's claim to fame. You cannot build enough hydro dams to double the electricity output of British Columbia. It Agreed. cannot be done. It has to be, uh, wind and solar are the, really the only sensible economic options at this point in, in the game. Now you have a crown corporation that's been around for 60 or 70 years that does nothing but build hydro dams. And in the case of the Site C, its current project, doing it very, very badly. And so how are you going to expand wind and solar with a crown corporation that has no experience in it? So then now you're going to have to look out to communities and First Nations and independent power providers. And it, the crown corporation has a not very stellar record of playing nice in the sandbox with... Uh, We're agreed about that. Right. 
And so what you need now is you, and I've interviewed a number of, I literally have interviewed probably 20 economists and engineers and power administrators across North America about this. And given where electricity technology is going, market-based systems work. And right next door in Alberta is the best, they say, best designed independent operator system probably in North America. So let, let me, let, let me, so first of all, uh, I share with you many of the frustrations about BC Hydro and uh, where I think uh, I concur is that the public sector, uh, including Crown Corps, need to be transformed. I say that in the book, that we need to transform the public sector, including bringing in new people and new ways of thinking to shake things up. In an interesting way, that's sort of what C.D. Howe did, right? He didn't just create all of these 28 Crown Corporations during the war, but he didn't trust the existing public service to run them. He brought in all of these outside people and their new ways of thinking to actually lead uh, those crown corporations. And I, I think we need to do something similar to that again. Um, uh, but let me quibble with a couple of things. So first of all, I don't actually think our little province here needs to double its electricity output. It is gonna need new capacity. And I agree with you that it can't come from big hydro dams anymore. But for a number of reasons, even as we electrify everything, I don't think we need to double just because of time of day stuff and peak capacity. The fact that so much of the electricity we're already producing is just to service the fossil fuel industry and fracking and all of this stuff that we need to stop. Um, and all of the other efficiency gains that are gonna come with the transition, I don't think we're, I've, I've seen stuff that convinces me we don't have to double, but we do need more. But, uh, and I would like to see BC Hydro approach that differently than we have. But let me give you another example um, about why I see the need for this uh, role. Uh, because my point is to truly achieve, I, I don't have faith that these independent producers alone will do what we need to do at the speed and scale of what we have to do in the next 10 years. Um, but also on the demand side. So I went through the exercise in the past year of getting my own home electrified, taking the natural, I've turned off the natural gas, I've switched to electric heat pump. And let me tell you, it was a very frustrating and expensive exercise. It is, a, it is in the private, you, you have to turn to the private market. Now, even though the province gives a $3,000 rebate and the city another 6,000 on top of that, it's still super expensive. Um, it cost me at least it had it cost me more than double that it was complicated there's nobody who imports a heat pump that's uh, hfc free even though they exist there no one imports it to this market i had the city's top engineers and contractors in my living room trying to help me figure out how to do it and even though you will not find a more highly motivated person than me i still wanted to run away screaming i did it um, but I came out of the exercise thinking that if we are hoping to achieve this at a voluntary level, offering people rebates, we're fried, we're fried, Markham, and we're, and we're going to still have more buildings tying into natural gas faster than we're going to convince people to switch to electric heat pumps. So I come out of the experience thinking this is only going to work if A, the switch is mandated, so that's the regulatory power of the state, and two, man, if we had a subsidiary of BC Hydro or some other new crown corporation that was mass either importing or manufacturing HFC free uh, heat pumps, 
got the economies of scale, took the profit margin out of it, made the cost equivalent to the, you know, brought the, eliminated the gap between the rebate and, and, and the cost of doing this. And with an army of, of installers uh, helping people do it, where unlike when you take your car to the garage, you're not always wondering if you're being built, then it might work. But the two have to partner up. Fair enough. And let's not beat this one to death. Uh, so we'll move on. Uh, but I'll just finish by saying my attitude towards crown corporations, I think, was uh, best articulated in 1995. I was chair of the Prince Albert Regional Economic Development Authority in Saskatchewan. And the NDP government of that time came around and had a, a consulting session. And I remember standing up and saying that uh, while we, crown, crown, public ownership is a very useful tool to spur economic development and build infrastructure and do a whole bunch of things. And we should not be afraid to let crown corporations uh, be privatized if it's demonstrated that co-ops or communities or private sector or whoever can do it better after mm -hmm. X number of decades. And we nor should we be afraid to create new crown corporations to, to accomplish goals that we think the private sector can't do in a timely fashion. So, Which is basically the I logic C.D. Howe brought to it, right? I he agree. was happy to give contracts to the private sector, but there, was, there were certain principles by which he went a different route. Right. And I'm simply arguing that, that a crown corporation in, certain, in some of these areas is not necessary. It may be, it may be for the, the example of the heat pumps that you just mentioned. So let's move on to another topic so we don't bore our listeners outside of Canada, and that is fossil fuels and, this, or, and oil and gas in particular. And so this is applicable to many, many countries across the world, in particular for our European and, uh, and American listeners. So you contend in the book, and I've listened to you and your, and your famous sister, Naomi Klein, uh, for many, many years saying we should you know, leave it in the ground. And I would argue that that would be a mistake of a significant mistake in the case of the oil sands. Now, of course, who can defend the oil sands with its 200 kilogram of CO2 equivalent per barrel, one of the dirtiest oils on the planet? That seems completely and utterly counterintuitive, except that that carbon intensity, if you can make precursor for carbon fiber out of it, then becomes a competitive advantage because now you can build, you can make carbon fiber, at half the price in enormous quantities. And who is, the, which industry needs carbon fiber more than any other, you ask? I'm glad you asked that question, Seth. <laughs> it is the automotive industry, which is busy electrifying and is trying to reduce the weight of its vehicles because the lighter the vehicle, the further you can get with your, your further the range you got. So I have interviewed, there's a, a provincial agency in Alberta called Alberta Innovates. It's leading this research. They say they're five to seven years away from having, being ready to do this. I've interviewed the uh, VP of sales for one of the big carbon fiber manufacturers in Missouri. He says there's no reason why we can, can't build carbon fiber plants right in Alberta next to the, to the resource. And I have argued in the hydrocarbon vision, which you can find on the Energy Media website, that it is time for the industry to begin pivoting to a post-combustion future. So, so you, I, you think it may have a role, but not in combustion, but actually in, in, in production materials. Look, maybe, maybe. And, and, and maybe you would say, you know, I could probably convinced, uh, be convinced of the same thing around metallurgic steel and uh, rather coal and, and 
and and some role that it might have uh, in in non-GHG emitting uh, steel infrastructure. But in some ways, you're making my previous case, which is you don't, in the face of an emergency, let the market determine the allocation of scarce resources. If there is to be a limited role for metallurgic coal and for Canadian oil in the, in, in the production, as you say, of GHG-free materials that we're gonna need as we transition, then we have to ensure that that's in fact what it's used for. We actually have to direct those markets to make sure that that and that alone is what it's used for. See, now I would agree. In fact, I have been arguing that for quite a while, Seth. You're, you're, you're a bit of a newcomer to energy media, but for the veterans out there, uh, they'll know that I've been a very loud and to some years obnoxious voice calling for these things for a while. And one of the things that I think we need to do in order to get to where you and I both agree we need to get, the world needs to get to, Canada needs to get to, is that the, the governments need to push harder. Now, you know, the federal government, I know you would say that Justin, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's climate policy is inadequate because, look, it hasn't done anything, right? We're still that's, no, no different. That's, that's very true. much what I think. That's exactly what you think and what you've said here. And I would argue that all of the policy tools, and there are three policy levers that any government can pull. And in Canada, that means carbon pricing, that means regulations, and that means subsidies. And this particular government is pulling all of those levers, and sometimes they are pulling them without much authority or without, and they're letting provincial governments who have constitutional authorities over some of these uh, sectors, they're letting them, you know, weasel their way out of serious commitments, like in Alberta, for instance, where methane emission regulations have been weakened, where the large emitter carbon tax has been, you know, diluted by the, by the conservative government instead of being robust as it, as it should be. But there is a study that just came out, popped into my inbox today, but I interviewed the author, Michael Bernstein, who's an economist with Canadian, with Clean Prosperity, who argues that 50% of our climate commitments can be met with the carbon pricing if we increase it $10 per ton every year to 2040. Look, um, you, you, your list of three, I don't object to. I just think it's incomplete, right? You're saying pricing, subsidize, regulate. I completely agree that all three of those should be part of how we make this leap. Um, however, the pricing has sucked up so much oxygen at the expense of other things. And I agree, I, look, I, I agree that there's a price point considerably higher than the one where we are right now at which it can drive some important changes, but I see no political appetite to actually go there. Subsidize, yes, uh, I particularly would like to subsidize lower income households who are gonna need help through the transition and regulate. That piece has been severely underemployed, even though the most significant actual GHG reductions we've seen in Canada have been from those provinces that are actually getting rid of coal electricity production and that is a clear regulatory move. So I wanna see more of that but I think your list is missing three points to add to your three points. Spend, create, communicate, okay? 
So when I look at, you know, when I try to summarize my takeaway from this World War II experience, how do you know when a government is actually in an emergency mode? I have these four markers. They spend what it takes to win. That's what C.D. Howe and Mackenzie King did during the, during the war. Um, two, you create new economic institutions to get the job done. That is my point about crown corporations, or I argue for a new federal transfer to the provinces for just transition. Um, in the war, we created crown corporations, we created the wartime prices board and the production board and, and the wartime information board, right? To actually get the public on side. So the third marker is you move from voluntary to mandatory. There's your regulatory point. And the fourth marker is you tell the truth. You communicate the urgency of the task at hand. And that's what we remember most about the key leaders from the Second World War. They were forthright about the nature of this task and they were coherent in their messaging. Uh, whereas what I find objectionable from many of our current leaders, whether it's Justin Trudeau or frankly, John Horgan or Rachel Motley, um, is when they say, yeah, we have a climate emergency, but yeah, we're gonna double down on fossil fuel infrastructure. They are sending a confusing message. They are undermining their own case and the case that has to be made at this late hour that we face an emergency. I, I can actually address that because I wrote a book last year called The New Alberta Advantage, uh, Technology Policy and the Future of the Oil Sands. And I interviewed Rachel Notley for half an hour. We talked about this very thing. And, and I have been a consistent critic. I, well, I, let me clarify. I, my experts over from 2015 when Notley was elected until 2019 when she was defeated by the, the current premier, Jason Kenney, said that her climate and policy and energy policies were excellent. And these were not, you know, lefty think tank economists. These were, these were, uh, they covered the, across the, the spectrum. But they all said this is what the policy is needed. It's well designed and it should be supported and continued. It wasn't. But here's the problem. Rachel Notley lost that election in part because she had a terrible, terrible energy narrative. And Rachel not, and I gave, when I was sitting there in the, the, the premier's office in Calgary, and I was asking her questions about, you know, the climate change and the energy transition and where her policies fit into them, she could not articulate to me a coherent energy narrative, how all these pieces knitted together, how the, how the dots got connected and why they should be connected. And she is, I've come to the conclusion that she is not alone. There are very, very few politicians, maybe none in Canada, who can articulate a coherent energy narrative. Well, we agree, we agree about that. But, but on the substance of the Alberta plan too, I, I think you're too generous. Um, look, there were, there were parts of the Notley plan that I laud in the book, the, where the, she went with coal and uh, in particular, and uh, she grabbed the bull by the horns on a few points, but overall, their plan saw a continued uh, no decline in, in GHG emissions before 2030. Um, it's an emergency, man. We, we got to have our emissions by 2030. So it doesn't add up. Okay. And, and to pursue that, that, because that criticism is absolutely accurate. Okay. I, I acknowledge that. And, and that was one of the deficiencies in, in her plan that could have been addressed 
with by just simply pushing harder on the accelerator pedal because all the companies, the, the big oil sands companies that account for most of those emissions actually have the technology to uh, get to net zero far quicker than they're promising. But let, I want to point now down, to, down into the US, Seth, because I have read and interviewed experts about Joe Biden's clean energy plan and his climate plan. And I don't pretend, I don't think for a moment that Joe Biden sat in his study and wrote that, wrote that plan. But I can tell you that whoever did knows what the hell they're talking about. That, that, uh, Joe Biden's team understands that Europe, Asia, and the United States are in a race to see who is, which, which area is, is going to dominate the clean energy technologies, just mm -hmm. as the U.S. dominated internal combustion engines mm -hmm. and petroleum at, uh, after. I, I agree with you. I like a lot of what's in the Biden climate plan. I right. think a lot of good people had their hand in it. It's a very, very good plan. And Canada, in particular, has to figure out where it fits into it. Because Canada can't do all this stuff on its yeah. own. I'm sorry. Uh, You're right. No, no, look. And look, during the war, we cooperated on, on a whole bunch of the production that I talk about in the book. But, let's, but look at Biden's plan. Um, Take the point, I'm, the first point, my first marker, spend what it takes to win like it's an emergency. Now, he has to get it through the Senate, and that's a big open question. But that Biden plan called for $2 trillion in spending over four years. So half a trillion a year, convert that to Canada because it's like a tenth the size. It's still $50 billion a year. Justin Trudeau is spending $2 billion a year. Not a little bit less, but less by a massive order of magnitude. Yes. Okay. We, we agree with that. But then if he spent more, he would simply be doing the, the kind of, you know, in your words, neoliberal approach, and you, which you still fundamentally disagree with even if he was spending more. But though he would have covered one of your points, you're important for- Look, for I want, I think, and this is what I say in the book, look, it, it's primarily infrastructure to make this transition. Uh, I, I think Justin Trudeau should bring in a just transition climate emergency transfer to the provinces. Um, and it should be uh, 20 to $40 billion a year for the next 10 years. And it, it should be spending on all of the things that, that we need to do to expedite that transition, but it's mostly on, on different kinds of energy infrastructure, retrofits or so on, but sort of one-time capital spending, most of it. Um, uh, but, uh, and then I also think we need a new generation of crown corporations. And by the way, to your earlier point, I'm, I'm quite open and flexible about what form that takes, you know, whether it's a municipal social enterprise or, or indigenous social. The point is, is that the profit margin is not there. It's driven by community need. He, you know, here in Vancouver, where I live, uh, a huge change is being driven by a municipally owned public utility where all of the new buildings uh, in Falls Creek are tying into a, a heat exchange or heated th through a heat exchange from, from wastewater. You know, it's fantastic. Uh, and that's a municipal uh, public entity. So it can take many different forms, but right now, what Justin Trudeau and Rachel Notley and John Horgan, all, you know, how, many, how many new public entities have they created to drive the energy transition? Zero, because they, they don't, they're not thinking, that's what I mean by getting trapped in neoliberal thinking. Now, 
uh, we've come to the end of the uh, end of the podcast episode. And I want to circle all the way back around to the beginning. And why I liked your book. Sure. Oh, good. <laughs> sure, was, sure was well written and, and entertaining. And, and it was clear. It was well argued. Okay. And again, that's not something we, we see every day on, in this subject matter. But here's why your book is really important, Seth, if you needed somebody to tell you. Please. We desperately need new energy narratives in Canada. Desperately need them. Biden and his team, and not just Biden, because if you look at American scholarship and American thinking in America, they are so far ahead of us. The Europeans are so far ahead of us. The purpose of this podcast is to, is to interview uh, global experts outside of Canada and bring those ideas into Canada. Mm -hmm. We're so in We need it. We're yeah, a bunch of folks are kicking our butts. We're very provincial here. Yeah. And so when you look outside, you see all kinds of competing narratives that are very sophisticated and well-researched and well-argued, and, and they're sitting in the wings. They, but this, this discourse has been going on for years and decades in the United States and in Europe, where in Canada, it's, it's a very almost stillborn. And so your book, I don't have to agree with everything in it to say that this is a very important book because it advances a narrative for tackling climate change and accelerating the energy transition. Thanks. Can I say something about narratives? Um, because I, I, I really appreciate your saying that. And, you know, when I think about the most insidious legacy of 40 years of neoliberalism, it isn't, you know, the, the, the spending cuts and the tax cuts and the deregulation, all these things that annoy me. It's the sapping of our imagination and our belief and our capacity to accomplish great things together. That's the main barrier we have to overcome. That's why in the book, it's really this historic excavation of a story to remind us of how quickly and brashly we're able to move when we set our minds to it. And uh, I'm, you know, this is when, when I say that I, I went into the exercise looking only at the economic transition and realized that there was a much more significant story there that actually is much more rooted in narrative, as you say, um, around public opinion. So many of us assume that right at the outset of the Second World War, everyone was there, everyone was ready to rally, we declared war, good to go. Not true. This was a very divided public public, a wary uh, and weary public. It took leadership to get the public there. And it took narrative. We had a wartime information board. We had thankfully just created another crown corporation called the CBC three years before the war. And so there was a vehicle for presenting a shared story every night as people gathered around the radio. The same was true in the States. The US in 1939 was majority opposed to joining the war. By the time Pearl Harbor happened two years later, a majority was in favor before Pearl Harbor. Why? Because Edward R. Murrow and this team from CBS News had spent two years, they're credited with shifting US public opinion by 20% by the stories they told from the front lines. You say you're, you wanna bring reporting about what's happening elsewhere in the world, exactly. But, but, they, but we need to bring a sense of emergency and urgency to it. And on that note, Seth, thank you very much for this. I, we agree on the, on the urgency part of it. And I look forward to chatting with you about this more in the future because uh, there 
the public discourse in Canada around energy and climate is stunted. Yes, it is. It needs to change in a hurry so that we can, all, we need to change our thinking and our talking before we can begin planning for another future. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you, sir.